Please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you are a visitor here today, we're glad that you are here with us. We are working not through 2 Corinthians, but through the book of Acts right now. And to prepare to read our passage for today in Acts chapter 4, I want to start with another passage that deals with the same subject as our passage for today. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The primary topic of today's sermon is the topic of generosity. Um, And we will talk about, I want to begin by talking about sort of a theology of generosity. What, What are we supposed to understand this is? Where does it come from for a Christian to be generous? For those who were here a few months ago, we went through the book of Philippians. And the Philippians are one of the churches included in this opening verse, the Macedonia area. The Philippi was one of the cities in Macedonia, so if you remember the Philippians from a few months ago, they are included here. And I want to take a few moments to think through this. So let me read this piece by piece, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is Paul. Let me say this before, before I read it. Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthians to be generous, and so he's telling a story about how some other churches already were generous, including the Philippians in Macedonia. And here's how Paul does that. Pretty amazing story, brief glimpse we get. 2 Corinthians 8.1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Let me me just stop there for a moment. A lot is happening in a very short period of time. First of all, these Macedonian Christians... When they became Christians, did they receive God's grace? Yes, the grace of God was given among them. Did their afflictions in life vanish away? No, what does it actually say? They had a severe affliction. So, first thing, crystal clear here, becoming a Christian does not eliminate trials and tribulations in this world, and for many people, it intensifies them. It's true. And so, here, these people become Christians, and God's grace is poured out. And does God's grace get rid of all the afflictions? No, they have severe afflictions. But that's not the only surprising thing. Internally, in their own heart, what else do they have an abundance of? They don't just have a lot of trials. What do they have? Abundance of joy. Now, that is not just countercultural or unusual. That is against human nature. You become a Christian, things get worse rather than better. You're like, okay. And then these people have, against their circumstances, joy that is going up, joy that is abounding, joy that is on the move. It is growing. It is getting larger. It's an abundance of joy. And here's something else. They also are very poor. And this a lot of good news here. So you become a Christian, things get worse, and you're poor 
but you're really happy about it. What's going on here? This is strange. These are strange people. So look at verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Are you getting the picture? They trust Jesus. They're converted. They're forgiven. Their life gets more difficult. They don't have much money. In fact, extreme poverty. They're barely making ends meet. And their joy in the Lord for what He's done for them and who He is starts going up. And their poverty mixes with their joy. Now, just think about this for a second. Their extreme poverty and their joy in Jesus mix together and surge upward, and it says it overflows in a wealth of generosity on their part. So, these people on the verge of poverty but know Jesus, their joy in Jesus and their poverty mix together and leads to a wealth of generosity. They give a lot of money, not what you would expect. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, the, the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Do you get that? I think that means they go to the Lord in prayer and they use discernment, and they say, how much really can we give? I mean, we don't want to actually starve ourselves, but how much can we? We, we gave according to our means, like we, we, we budgeted it out, we, we got it just to work right, and now we, we, it's not enough. We want to give more than that. So, they go to the Lord, and they say, Lord, can we please give more than that? And they seem to get in their conscience, yes, you can give. So, they give beyond their means of their own accord. No one is forcing them to do this, and they were begging to take part in the relief of other Christians, begging to be generous. Please, Paul, take our money. Please. Paul's saying, I don't know. You guys don't have a lot. Please, begging earnestly, please take our money and take it back to those Christians in Jerusalem and help them as they go through a severe test. Verse 6, accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Giving is an act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, look at verses 8 and 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, here's the thing. When the topic of generosity comes up in a church setting, ladies and gentlemen, when a topic of generosity comes up, everyone gets a little uncomfortable. You know, the church wants more money. What's going on here? That kind of thing. Let's just be honest. And we oftentimes think about guilt when it comes to giving. Oh, I know I haven't given enough, and I know I my life is going to be so miserable if I give as much as I'm supposed to, and oh, I don't want to think about giving, and it just sounds so unpleasant. That is not 
the route that Paul is taking here at all. Paul says, I could guilt you right now. I could shame you. I could make you feel terrible about you're not giving enough. No one ever feels like they're giving enough. That's not what he does. Now, just hear this when it comes to giving. Paul says, you know why those, those Macedonian Christians had joy in their poverty, and their joy and their poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity? You know what happened? The gospel was alive and well in their heart and life. And here's what they were thinking. This is fitting with the whole Christmas theme. Jesus was up in heaven, and He was as wealthy as you could imagine. He had infinite riches at His disposal, and He could do whatever He wanted to do. The Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And He pleased to empty Himself of His riches, not His divinity, heresy alert. He emptied Himself of His riches, and He came as a humble Galilean peasant. He lived an obscure life, and when He really became publicly known, He became hated. He was, now get this, He was, He chose to allow Himself to be spit on by people that He made. I just, I want you to think about that for a second. Maybe you have had times where someone has actually spit on you. I want you to think about that, the humiliation of what He chose to put Himself through. Did Jesus become poor on the cross? Of His own choice, He gave up the wealth of heaven, He emptied Himself, He lived the poor life, His parents were poor, and then He's hanging there on the cross, we just sung about the nails. And he dies while he's being mocked by people he made. Not only did he have to borrow a stable for his birth, he had to borrow a tomb for his death. He was poor. And it wasn't physical poverty that Paul's mainly focusing on here. Christ's true riches in eternity was his relationship with the Father through the Spirit. That is infinite wealth. And I don't fully understand this, but on the cross, in His humanity, He was truly forsaken by God. Why? Because your sin and my sin, if we know the Lord, it was placed on Jesus and He stood condemned in our place. And Jesus became infinitely impoverished on the cross. Why? That's the kind of God that we worship. He loves sinners like you and me. He became poor so that we could inherit His righteousness, we could become sons of the living God, and we could inherit, we could be co-heirs with Christ and inherit all things. You just think about this verse, Romans 8.32. It says, He who did not spare, this is God the Father referring to Jesus, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, freely and graciously give us all things? Here's the point. If there was anything unthinkable 
that God would give up? It would be Jesus. That's unthinkable. If you have a child, the thought of giving up your child for someone else is ridiculous. That's what God did. On the cross, forsook His Son. And if God gave us Jesus, you think He's going to stop and not give you everything you need and everything in eternity? That stuff is cheap, thrown in alongside the priceless gift of Jesus. So, generosity is not about guilt manipulation. It's not about, oh, you're a terrible person, here's what you should be doing with your money. Generosity is a way that you and I have as a privilege to show others a taste of what we've been shown in Jesus. Jesus generously gave you His blood, His life for you. He freed you from your past. He freed you from your sin. He had, the Father adopted you into His family. He's given you infinite riches. And now we, in a little parable of that, a little picture, we can give to others. It starts with our, sure, our finances. But I would say in this day and age, our time is no less valuable than our money. I think it's sometimes harder to give. To be able to give of ourselves to others, especially people in need, is a wonderful way to show the world the kind of love that Christ has shown to us so that in an, ab an abundance of joy and extreme poverty can overflow in a wealth of generosity on our part. So turn with me now to our primary text for today, which is in Acts, and I want to start in Acts chapter 2 and read a summary statement there and then turn back to our primary text, which is the end of Acts chapter 4. So we will start in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we've read this obviously previously, but listen to these wonderful summary statements of the community, this early church community. And these are the first few months that the church has been born. Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. See if you can see these marks of generosity and unity. Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now turn with me to Acts 4. A similar kind of summary statement is our text for today. I'm going to read Acts 4 verses 31 to 37, and that's our text. Acts 4, 31 to 37. 
And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So let me just sort of give you the overview of the structure of this text. Um, verse 31 is sort of the summary of everyone speaking boldly. Then 32 is sort of the practical on the ground, how it looked with their unity and love for each other. Then verse 33 is, again, this big picture of the, of the preaching of the gospel here by the apostles. And then verses 34 to 37, again, is back on the ground looking at the love and the unity between all these believers. So, I'm going to be rereading the text as we go. Let me go back to verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were, shake, in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So, all that you see in this text today is preceded by prayer for boldness, which was our theme for last Sunday's sermon praying that we could be more bold for our faith in Christ. And as they pray, the Spirit fills them, and the place in which they are is shaken. Look with me at verse 33, the very last phrase there. It says, and great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. So, for anyone who may not be as familiar with, with the Christian faith, perhaps some of you are, are here or listening right now, if you're not as familiar with the Christian faith, uh, we want to be very clear from the very beginning that the Christian faith is not a moral self-improvement process or program. The Christian faith is not about how you can show off that you are better than your neighbors or friends by being such a devout, holy person. It's not about being holier than thou. It's not about hiding away in some sort of place and trying to flaunt your righteousness before others. Christianity starts and ends with this. I have nothing in my hand to offer to God, and He offers me His lavish grace. And just like with the Macedonians, who remember, the grace of God came down and gave them that joy in the midst of their trials, so here the grace of God, the great grace of God was upon them all. So anytime someone has been converted, in the last few years our church has been here, that has been by God's grace, not by anything that we have done. Anytime someone has grown in their faith or conquered uh, some sin or gotten victory over some sin in their life or has fought against some sin and been able to be open and honest and work through a hard issue in their life, every time that has been happening, that is the grace of God at work 
in our midst. We owe everything from top to bottom as Christians to the grace of God at work within us. We owe it all to grace. And I will tell you, you never graduate from Grace Academy. I just made that up. I don't even know what that means. Uh, you, 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 you never graduate from the school of grace. In fact, the sign that you are growing as a Christian is not that you need God less, but that you know that you've always needed Him more than you ever thought. That, that's a sign that you're growing. Immature Christians think, well, God's been good to me and things have been going well, but I can sort of, I can take it from here. And we don't say it that bluntly, but in Galatians chapter 3, two chapters before where Greg just was, Paul rebukes the Galatians and says, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, and what you began by the Spirit through grace, are you now going to be, try to be completed through works of the flesh? What's Paul saying? Don't buy the lie that you've started with grace and you move on to human merit or human ingenuity or human willpower or I can get this thing done by gritting my teeth and bearing it. No, the sign of a maturing Christian is this, you wake up in the morning and you go to bed at night desperate for God to help you fight your daily sin struggle. If you think that your sin struggles are a thing of your past, I would say that I just named a new sin struggle for you to worry about, okay? Because <laughs> I'm telling you, you and I deal with our flesh every day, and if you aren't fighting against your flesh, you are, I think, very ignorant to what is going on within your own, your own heart right now. Romans 7 says, Paul writes, I find it to be a law that is a principle, an unchanging law, that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. Do you feel this when you want to open your Bible? Do you, do you ever feel the, the internal battle going on? I mean, la- I'm, I'm supposed to preach today. Last night, before going to bed, I did not want to have a quiet time. I'm supposed to preach the next day about how you're supposed to have a quiet time. You know? <laughs> so, so, last night, before I go to bed, I, there was something inside of me resisting the Lord last night. It took time. I did not want to go to Him. Last night. And so, I don't know about you, but this is a daily struggle for me. Do I want to humble myself and say, Lord, I need your help. Please help me. Give me your great grace to uphold me so that I can serve you with a proper motive. That's what Christianity is. And what does great grace do? When when we are humble by His grace, when we humble ourselves and say, God, I have nothing to offer you except need, emptiness, spiritual starvation, dehydration. That's what I have to bring to you, Lord. And the Lord says, wonderful, come to me. You labor, you're heavy laden, I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly of heart. You will find rest for your soul in me. I love God. The Lord loves to give His great grace to you and to me. And I'll be honest, this may sound harsh. One of the… I think I can just say the primary reason. The primary reason that you and I struggle spiritually and are not near where we want to be spiritually is on us because we don't want His grace as much as we sometimes say. If you want the Lord, He's there for the taking. And I think this enemy within, my sin nature, my my indwelling flesh, has more power than I want to admit. And I need God's Spirit to help me fight my flesh and to live according to God's Spirit, and we need His great grace. And let me tell you something right now, the Lord is not stingy in giving His grace. 
You've got a habit. You've got a sin tendency. You've got something going on in your head, in your life, whatever it is, and you can't seem to beat it. You can't defeat it. Let me tell you something. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, He loves to exalt us. He loves to give His great grace to us if we come to Him humble, broken, and desperate for help. He loves. He does not hold it against us. What does James say? If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. He gives generously to all without finding fault. But make sure the one who asks, asks sincerely, not a double-minded man, doubting, but someone who asks sincerely. Do we really want God's great grace? Do we really seek it? Okay. Now, what does that great grace do when it enters into a community? Look with me here at this text. Verse 32. Well, let me start here at the end of 31. It says, they all, middle of the verse, they all were filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the Word of God with all boldness. So, this I'm, I'm going to repeat last week's, last two weeks' theme. When we ask for God's great grace, we will find a boldness for the Lord growing within us, a boldness for Jesus that grows. It doesn't say some of them spoke boldly. All of them were filled with the Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God boldly. But what else does God's grace do? Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So, the next part is it creates tremendous unity between believers. They were of one heart and soul. I'm sure I've said, I know I've said this before, and I know with COVID, you can, it's hard to even imagine this, but imagine Sanford Stadium with 90,000 people in it. It's hard to imagine, okay? So, you're, you're at a Georgia game, and you're a big Georgia fan, let's just say, maybe you're not, we'll just go with it for a second. And uh, you're a big Georgia fan, and you're there, and you're sitting between people you don't even know person behind you, next to you, you don't know these people, and Georgia scores, and suddenly you're giving a high five to this questionable person behind you that you've never seen before, and you're, you're, you're screaming and celebrating, you're jumping up and down, people around you are like, you know, you're, you become best friends with these people. What's going on? How, how can you have this sort of instant bond at a Georgia game when Georgia gets an interception, suddenly, what's going on? Well, the answer is you, you've got a common object that is bigger than you, that's out in front of you with all the lights on the field, and your identity, I mean, I'm not saying this in an idolatrous way, although it can be idolatrous, but I'm just saying, like, you, your, your sense of identity, unity with the team is so tied up with what they're doing on the field, even though you're not even playing, when they score, it feels like you score, right? And when, when, when the other team scores, it feels like you just lost, uh, you know, so you get this, you're tied in with them, and then everyone around you suddenly becomes your best friend. Why? Because you share something significant in common. And when you share something significant in common, suddenly you feel like you're friends with this person. Well, what's happening in Jerusalem with these 10,000 plus converts is the great grace of God has broken in, and they are so, their eyes are so on Jesus. They have fixed their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. They're looking to Jesus, and so what happens? When they turn to their right and to their left, they say, that's my brother, that's my sister in the Lord. These people are my spiritual family in Christ, and suddenly there is a deep affection, a deep bond, a deep unity for these siblings in Jesus that you may not have even known before you knew Jesus. Have you felt that? You, 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 ever, you ever had this happen? You're traveling, and you're in another state or maybe another country, and you, you show up somewhere, 
and you meet someone, and you can see in their eyes, because they're, they're talking about they're, they're, they're a Christian, and you can see in a split second, you just met this person, and they tell you they're a Christian, and you can see it in their eye that they're like a real Christian, like you could just, they, they know the Lord. Have you ever felt that immediate sense of the strangest sense of just a bond with that person. You could be in another side of the world, and you meet someone. This person's a Christian. They start talking about Jesus, and you're talking about Jesus, and you feel this strange bond, and you almost feel like you know this person, and it's it's just it's strange. That is the bond that we have in Christ, and these people have it to the point where they are of one heart and one soul. Now, listen. If there is serious doctrinal error, there is a time and a place to divide over that. In church history, there were people that said, okay, I, Arius denies the Trinity, and other people said, no, no, we, we affirm the Trinity. Well, there's going to be a division there that, that must happen. You, you can't be unified and let truth die in the streets when you're being unified. That, that, that is, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about genuine believers who believe the same gospel. They might have differences on secondary matters, but they believe the same gospel. They are of one heart and one soul. What that means is petty church squabbles did not exist for the most part, in this time and in this place. Now, listen, like I said, there is a time and a place to divide over certain things for sure. But can we be honest? Let's just talk about Southern Baptists because that's what, that's what we are here. Southern Baptist churches. Don't those words just flow off your tongue? So, when you think about our denomination, maybe you've been in a, grown up at Southern Baptist Church, maybe you're from another denomination growing up, but, but my guess is that you've experienced, if you grew up in the church, you saw some of the ugly side of, Chris, uh, of Christian disunity. And you've probably seen people fight and quarrel over, can we just admit, the dumbest stuff imaginable. And, and there have been relationships that have been actually permanently damaged over matters of taste and aesthetics, and things that frankly have no moral value whatsoever, and people have permanent bitterness. You talk to someone, and they refer to something 10, 20, 30 years ago, and they're still angry about it, and you're going, oh my goodness. That is a bad testimony to the watching world, but that's not what we see here. They're of one heart and one soul. Look at the middle of verse 32. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, I really don't even want to take the time to talk about this, but I have to. So, literally every, I think every single commentary and sermon I listened to, which was a number of different people, I think every single one mentioned communism on this text. Every, I'm not kidding. Every single, I don't think there was an exception, like Sinclair Ferguson was talking about communism. Uh, every, every, when Sinclair Ferguson was talking about communism, you know, you know it's getting serious. So, I, 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 I want to say something about communism because I, I just Googled. I was curious. I, I looked up Christian communism today on Google. <laughs> it's just a funny thing to say. And uh, there's a Wikipedia page called Christian communism. And if one of you started it, shame on you. Okay, so the Christian communism, I clicked on the link and uh, I, I kid you not, Today's sermon text is one of their primary three texts for Christian communism. And there's also, there's also a Christian socialism page, and they use the same text there as well. So it's bad news on both fronts, okay? So th- this text is often used. And uh, virtually everyone, I think maybe everyone I listened to on this, said pretty much the same thing. Okay. Communism involves the lack of private property, right? You, you can't own your own property. And it also is forced on you by like, you know, the secret police are watching. It's forced on you from above. And if you don't give up your private property, you're in big trouble. That is not what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here, this is very important. Number one, private property is not being absolutely given up. 
okay? It's not because chapter 2 says they were going from house to house. I mean, they still had houses. Number two, in Acts 12, John Mark's mother, Mary, they have a big prayer meeting in her large house. She hadn't sold it. The point here is not that every individual sold every bit of property and they pulled it together and there was some kind of Christian communism. That is not what's happening here whatsoever. What you're seeing here is this. Number one, was it commanded that they sell all their property and give all the money to the apostles? Was that commanded? No, it was not. It was, starts with a V, voluntary. It was done of their own accord, kind of like the other Christians in 2 Corinthians. It was of their own accord. It was not commanded. It was, it was something that people were doing of their own choice. Number two, did everyone sell all of their private property? No, because there are people meeting in houses all throughout the book of Acts that were not sold. So, what is really going on here? Whenever someone says something radically crazy about the Bible, first rule, reread the passage and read it slowly. That's like rule number one, because let's not jump to any conclusions here. Let's look again at verse 32 to address Christian, so-called Christian communism. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. First thing here, probably a lot of what's being talked about in this specific verse is this. <clears throat> People did not treat their own possessions as if they were the only ones who had authority over them. They were much more open about who used what and where and how. So, it sounds like people were very free to meet in other people's houses. Well, let me tell you, in the last five years that we've had a church here, so many of you in this room have in so many ways been hospitable with your own home when you're able to do that. I know not everyone is able to do that, but so often we've been able to have small groups meeting in some of your homes, and we've had discussion groups in your homes and family groups in your homes, and we've had people over to your house to eat or to have fellowship, and that is the kind of thing that you're seeing here. People were open and liberal with their things. They were able to give freely, and they were able to share things in common. There was not this hoarding or, no, that's mine, don't touch it, not that kind of stuff. Oh, you need something? Oh, you need, you need to borrow a car? I'll let you borrow my car. That, that, that's the kind of, there was this kind of very strong love for each other and sharing things in common. But they did sell land. Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, now this is important also. This means almost certainly what's happening is this. A need arises in the community. I'll just make something up. Maybe a husband dies and you're left with a widow and five children. That certainly would have happened. Chapter 6, we'll talk about orphans and uh, widows in this early church. There were, there were a number of widows. So the husband has died, there's, there's a wife, and she has five children, and there's just no way that she can support these children on her own. You know what would happen? Somebody says, hey, I've got this land. And they go off and sell their property. And they bring in the equivalent of, I don't know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000, whatever it might be, and they say, hey, I just want to give this for all the widows right now in our church. It's 10,000 people. There were plenty of widows in need. There was orphan children. There would have been people who, who needed food, basic necessities. This person gives this a massive amount of money at the apostles' feet and says, you, do, you guys do what you think is wise with this, but I know that there's a need here. And it says when needs arose, somebody in the, in the church was saying, I'll take care of it. I'll do it. And so, as needs arose, certain people would sell certain of their own things, bring the money to the apostles, lay it humbly at their feet, and say, you guys meet this need. It is not acceptable that these needs not be met. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what the church can be? And listen, I have seen so many things in, in our church where there's been a need, and I have heard and know, I've even been the recipient at times, 
of your generosity where someone steps up and says, hey, I know you guys are going through this right now. You just had a newborn. Here's a gift card for this restaurant with a good bit of money on it and say, hey, you, you guys go here for the next couple of weeks. Things like that that are just wonderful blessings. And, and, and I just say the, the more of that, the better as we can think about and meet one another's needs. I'm trying to figure out how to shorten this next part. Okay, so here, here. Let, let, let me try to, uh, to just sort of summarize something, and then in a couple weeks, I plan to come back and talk more about the widow's situation when we get to chapter 6. I, I want to mention something that uh, Kevin DeYoung, in fact, he has a book called What is the Mission of the Church, which uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote with Greg Gilbert, which I found to be very helpful on some of these topics, but here's something that Kevin DeYoung drew to my attention a few years ago from that book, and he calls it this. He calls this the law of moral proximity. What's that? Well, here's the thing. I don't know about you, but there are enough needs to meet in this city, much less this country, much less this world, that there can be a kind of false guilt put on Christians to say that if anyone is suffering anywhere in the world, it's your fault, and if you don't fix it, that's on you. Okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but do you know a little bit of what I'm talking about here? This, this sense of someone somewhere is hurting, and if you don't fix it, that's your fault. And, and there can be this kind of overburdening false guilt. And Kevin DeYoung, and this is really actually a matter of common sense, but I'm not sure that it's as common as it should be. The law of moral proximity is this. In the Bible, it is clearly taught that we are not equally obligated to take care of everyone's needs to the same degree. Okay? So, see if this makes sense. I'll turn, you, I'll turn you to one text. Go with me to the right to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And when you're going to see the word honor here, and the word honor has to do with financial support. Financial support, as it also is in, in verses 17 and 18. So, 1 Timothy chapter 5, this is dealing with widows who are truly in need, and listen to this idea of, of moral proximity uh, explained. 1 Timothy 5.3, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives." Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, do you see here? Imagine concentric circles, my favorite illustration for anything. Concentric circles, like a dartboard. Okay, so level number one in terms of responsibility to meet people's needs, this should be obvious, is your own family. So, especially if you have uh, aging parents or grandparents, or if you have someone who's particularly ill, or you have little children, there's just a lot of needs that have to be met. Even in our own church, I'm thinking of various people with, with, with pretty serious situations going on in their own family. Level number one that's non-negotiable is we must prioritize the needs of our own family members above any other relationship because that's number one. And it says here, listen, if there is a widow who has living children and grandchildren in the area who have some financial abilities here, then first of all, who should take care of that widow? Her children and grandchildren. That's, that's the first line of support. And if someone is unwilling to actually provide for their relatives in their own household, 
and they say that they're a Christian, they've denied the faith and they're worse than an unbeliever. You know what he means by that, worse than an unbeliever? Even unbelievers take care of their own family most of the time. Even It's like basic morality for an unbeliever, take care of your own family. If a Christian fails to do that, they're acting worse than an unbeliever. That's a terrible testimony, and they're denying their own faith. So, level number one, the non-negotiable priority, uh, again, especially if there's particular needs in your family, is your own family. Let the children or grandchildren first learn to show godliness in their own household, verse three. First, number one, level number one. Level number two is your local church family your local church family. So, here's what I mean. If I spend all my time serving needs that are far removed from my family and my church, and I spend virtually all my time out there, and I neglect my family or my church family, that is actually sin. And in certain contexts, that would be sin because it's misprioritizing who I should be caring for. So, within our own church there are families that have needs. I mean, even I've seen, as you guys do, uh, take care of meals for people who've just had children and things of that nature, it is a wonderful picture of this very thing, taking care of the needs within our own local body of Christ. And then, do you understand how moral proximity keeps going then? So, next it might be other churches, like-minded to ours, perhaps in the area or our denomination. It might be uh, physical needs of unbelievers in the, in the more spread-out community around us, Good Samaritan type stuff where you, you see someone in desperate need, you must help that person. But I want us to prioritize rightly our generosity. First level, our family. Second level, our church family. And then we move out from there. And I, the reason I'm even taking the time to say this is because I think that some Christians who probably mean well have written books that have said things that have led to the feeling that if someone is hurting somewhere that you don't even know about out there, and you're not helping that situation right now, that you've done something terrible. And I'm saying, well, if someone makes you feel obligated to do things that would take 36 hours in a day to do, then they're giving you false guilt. Do you understand what I'm saying? If, if they're demanding of you more time than you have, more money than you have, more resources than you have, then they're actually putting on you a guilt for something that you actually couldn't meet if you wanted to because of how things are prioritized. So, the vast majority of my time goes to my family, my wife and my children, this church and my high school where I teach. That doesn't mean I have no time for things outside of it, but it will mean that if an old, you know, some, some acquaintance wants to contact me, I'm going to not prioritize that as highly as people in this room. You see how this works? So, so, prioritizing things in accordance with those values will help you. And, and okay, this is a little bit to the side, but um, real quick, if you, if you feel like you're one of those people that can't say no to anyone, okay, now we all struggle with this. Okay? I'm, I'm not trying to, again, guilt you. I'm trying to free you up, okay? If, if there are people in your life that are simply not close to your priorities in terms of what you should be spending your time on, but they oftentimes are asking to, to you, know, spend lots of, you know, spend lots of time with you, and you feel like, okay, this is, I don't think I'm prioritizing my time correctly, you need to think through that carefully, and at times you need to be able to humbly say no, uh, to, to make sure that your priorities are being properly met, and that the relationships that need to be cultivated and, and, and kept up with are being kept at the center, and perhaps some not prioritized to the same level. Do you understand kind of where I'm going here? So, so just something to think through, that law of moral proximity, and I think we will come back to that more in the future. Galatians 6.10 is a great summary. Paul says, as we have opportunity crucial phrase. We don't always have opportunity for every good deed, 
as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially the household of faith. Now, do you hear the priorities? As we have opportunity, you don't have opportunity to do every good deed you can imagine, so don't feel false guilt for not doing what you can't do. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Yes, unbelievers and believers, but priority goes on the household of faith, especially to the household of faith. And we could talk on about that, but we will uh, hasten on to the end of the sermon. So, turn with me back to uh, Acts chapter 4. So, what we've had so far, really, in verses 31 to 35, is a general picture of just sort of everybody. They were all together. They were all of one heart and soul. They were all giving their belongings. And then he gives, Luke gives us one specific example of what was going on more broadly. It's this Barnabas character who will show up a lot in Acts. Listen to what he says about Barnabas. Verses 36 and 37 of Acts 4. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is quite an individual. We will see later in the book of Acts that Barnabas is always sort of giving the benefit of the doubt. He's, tr- he's very warm. He tries to sort of unite people, keep people together. Also very generous, but I love that they called him Barnabas. Do you, you know his name was Joseph? I didn't even know that. That was not even in my mind. Barnabas, was, his actual name was Joseph. They name him son of encouragement. And, and here's something just to challenge us as we, as we wrap up. How would people label you and me. So, in relationship to some of what we're hearing here, they say, Barnabas, you know, son of encouragement, oftentimes in the Bible, they would speak of you as being uh, part of a family, and you know, you've got children of wrath in Ephesians 2. Oh, goodness, I don't want to be part of that family. That's not good. You've got, you've got other kinds of things, sons of God. When you show mercy, you're a son of God. You're acting as God is acting. Well, here, Barnabas, his life was all about encouragement and exhortation. What characteristic would mark your life. Perhaps it would be positive, perhaps it would be negative, but think through this as we take a moment here to pray. What characteristic would mark you? If, if someone were to label you honestly, would they say that this person, you know, when I'm around them, they're always bringing up bad news about other people. They're always gossiping and talking about it. the conversation. I can't keep it straight when I'm around this person. They're always bringing stuff up. Is that what they would say if they were being honest about you? Well, they say, this person's always giving me the... the this person doesn't seem to really believe the promises of God. They, they, they're always bringing out what, what, is, what is going to be discouraging and not encouraging. Or would they say, when I'm, when I'm around this person, they encourage my faith in the Lord. They strengthen my courage. They make my faith in God's promises stronger. When I leave this person's presence, I'm encouraged. I've been exhorted. I'm more likely to walk closer to Jesus when I leave their presence than when I was not with them. What would they say? And whatever you would say it would be, let's aspire to be a Barnabas ourselves. Let's aspire to be the kind of Christian who when people are around us, they leave encouraged and exhorted in their faith by how we are and how we act. Let's pray together. I'll give you just a moment to pray silently and then I'll, I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we 
Thank you for the great grace that you have given North Avenue Church for these almost five years now, that you have just been so faithful to us despite ourselves. Thank you for the many evidences of grace that have been so obvious in the members of this church, those who are here currently and many who have already moved away. God, I pray that you would make us unified more than ever in the faith, that we would be willing to share whatever is needed to help someone who needs something in a particular moment. Help us to be sons and daughters of encouragement in this church. Help us to be those who love others well, who encourage trust in your promises, and who exhort others to live for Jesus, not in a self-righteous way, in a way that is genuinely loving and coming from a heart of compassion. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from 2 Corinthians 9. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Heavenly Father, I do pray that we would be and continue to be and abound in being those who are generous with their finances, generous with our time, generous with our energies, God, help us to have such joy in the gospel that it overflows in a wealth of generosity for your glory. And I pray for more and more a unity, a love, and a desire to be of one heart and one soul. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.